the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com. You can get podcasts and program there as you can on Spotify and iTunes. On social media at Dan Prof Show, and uh, we begin this installment by uh, taking stock of where impeachment 2.0, the trial stands. Uh, it's a lot of sentimental barbar- barbarism and straw men, as far as uh, my assessment goes. What you have are House Democrat Socialist managers trying to make out a case of incitement to riot with uh, an incitement to unreason inflaming the passions of the jurors, if you will, the senators and really the public to put pressure on the senators, say a bad thing happened, happened on Trump's watch by his supporters. He's bad. Therefore, he should be convicted. That's about the depth of the analysis. And it started that the headline uh, after day two was the never before seen footage of the Capitol. Uh, as and this goes to my point about sentimentalism and straw men. One, it's a strictly an appeal to emotion. Two, it's a straw man because there's no opposing viewpoint on the topic. There's no one saying what you're about to see. I defend. So uh, Stacy Plaskett's narration, notwithstanding, this is all just prejudicial uh, uh, flimflamery, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, She is the delegate to U.S. Virgin Islands, one of the House Democrat Socialist impeachment managers. Here's part of her narration that's supposed to whip people into a frenzy. Officer Goodman passes Senator Mitt Romney and directs him to turn around in order to get to safety. On the first floor, just beneath them, the mob had already started to search for the Senate chamber. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of flavor, and then she goes on. Pence looks back. He heard a noise as he's being uh, rushed to safety and so forth. It's not to minimize what happened, of course, and it's not to defend what happened. Nobody's doing that. And this is in part what Trump's defense lawyers have to get at. You, you can't allow them to falsely claim moral high ground that they don't occupy. This is important because this is really m- mainly a legal process. A legal process that should feature something akin to legal arguments, a political process that should uh, feature something akin to legal arguments. And uh, it doesn't seem like Democrat, Democrat socialist House managers can settle on one because the article of impeachment says incitement to riot. But Stacey Plaskett and Eric Swalwell say, no, it was actually a conspiracy. Don't they? Isn't that what they say? Uh, Plaskett. Uh, And Swalwell, this wasn't just one speech. This was weeks upon weeks of leading into January 6th of essentially 
putting together this band of conspirators that were to lay siege to the Capitol. The truth is, President Trump had spent months calling his supporters to a march on a specific day, at a specific time, in specific places to stop the certification. And leading up to the event, there were hundreds, hundreds of posts online showing that his supporters took this as a call to arms to attack the Capitol. Eric Swalwell reiterating a version of that argument. This was never about one speech. He built this mob over many months with repeated messaging until they believed that they had been robbed of their vote and they would do anything to stop the certification. He made, the, he made them believe that their victory was stolen and incited them so he could use them to steal the election for himself. Well, I mean, just a point of order, your article of impeachment says incitement to riot. You're making a, a case that he is the leader of a conspiracy to attack the Capitol. Uh, speeches over many months. They play clips from his rallies in Georgia in December and January, prior to January 6th. Um, so where do we go for a, an understanding of this a standard as opposed w- with respect to incitement? Well, one place to go would be the Supreme Court and the jurisprudence there. Uh, Brandenburg v. Ohio would be the controlling case on incitement to riot. 1969, the court held that inflammatory speech, even speech advocating violence by members of the Ku Klux Klan, is protected under the First Amendment unless the speech, quote, is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Imminent. There's a time element to it. So incitement requires imminent. I said something, you did something, and uh, I should have known that what I said would lead you to do what you did. Well, that's not what they're saying. They're making out a conspiracy charge. So which is it? Or do they just get to argue in the alternative so long as they continue to run videos? For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined again by John Yu, Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. It's good to be back with you. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in law school, but um, do I have uh, the, the arguments they're making? Have I, have I um, uh, briefed their case, if, as, as it were, effectively? Yeah, I'd give you uh, an A minus because I A-. only give A's to one out of every hundred students. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. All right. Yeah. So I, no, I think you're quite right. So there's uh, the issue here is what I think the Democrats are doing is uh, you know using this for more of a political purpose to uh, relive the events of the January 6th attack on the riots and to make the argument that President Trump in some way contributed to it through his challenges to the elections and then uh, not calling out law enforcement and military fast enough once the riot started. Yeah, you just but on that point, just, just just on that point before we get to the legal issues, and, I, and I'll, I'll turn the floor back over to you. He didn't call out to the police once it started. First of all, as Mark Meadows mentioned over the weekend on the Sunday talk shows, his former chief of staff, he offered through Secretary of Defense ten thousand National Guardsmen for January sixth. That was turned down by Capitol Police. Um, number one and uh, number two. I mean. Um, you know, Capitol Police uh, essentially that day had a presence there, and based on their rebuffing of the offer of federal support, they believed they had this under control. They were wrong, 
But, uh, you know, the idea that it was his responsibility after he had offered, you know, all the support that uh, any local police department should need and probably would have needed on that day uh, is uh, it's a curious one to make out, I think. So, I mean, that's the the claim they're trying to make is a kind of dereliction of duty kind of claim. Trump didn't do enough to stop the uh, riot. But the problem is that the impeachment is supposed to be a legal slash constitutional process, not just a forum to launch political attacks on your adversaries. And so the problem that the House managers had is that the House impeached Donald Trump for incitement to insurrection. And Dan, you're quite right. If you consider incitement uh, as it's used in the criminal code, the Supreme Court has placed very careful limits on it because it wants to protect the right to free speech. And incitement requires uh, you know, that the speaker called for violence. And as you just pointed out, it's very hard to actually find quotes where Trump calls for violence. Uh, you have to know that uh, violence is actually imminent and it actually is you know objectively likely you know it's not just you can't just give speeches that say uh you know call for violence and you know but they're but the person's uh you know speaking in the middle of a public square and no one's listening to them uh, at the same time you may be speaking at a rally and it may turn out that parts of it become uh, violent in the future but if you didn't say anything calling for violence you have a committed incitement and so I think when you look at the evidence that was put forward by the House managers yesterday, it was very emotional. It was very effective in showing that there was a riot and that the riot was uh, destructive and harmful. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't – the evidence didn't show Trump calling for the violence uh, right before it happened. And that's, uh, I think, a major failure. Now, uh, maybe the House managers have, said, have decided, well, we can't really show that. So instead what we're going to do is use this as an opportunity to try to just show that Trump was involved uh, in some way, uh, even if he didn't uh, incite the violence, and that uh, Republicans are responsible in some way in this attack on the Capitol, and it turns it more into a kind of political theater than a legal trial. Uh, when we come back, I, I want to get your take on a couple of other examples of uh, the legal prestidigitation that House Democrat socialist managers are attempting and also um, some assessment or advice and counsel you might give Trump's defense team when it comes their turn to uh, present their case. More with University of California Berkeley Law Professor John Yu right after this. in your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also the author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. In addition to playing the videos to try to appeal to people emotionally rather than make any sort of substantive legal claim in furtherance of their charge of incitement to riot, one of the other things the House managers did in their 
the clips that they offered, will say, well, look, even Trump supporters are saying that they did what they did because Trump told them to. I thought I was following my president. I thought I was following what we were called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that last woman is uh, under federal charges for breaching the Capitol. So you know, the idea that somebody who is under federal charges is being given an opportunity by the press and by House Democrats to just point the finger at Trump and say, I'm not responsible, he's responsible. Well, of course, you're going to have people take up that defense if it could potentially get them off the hook. That's not terribly compelling, is it, Professor Yu? I actually don't even think it's uh, relevant to a claim of incitement. You know, people have said, well, this is a terrible thing. Trump could completely get off. And that's not true either. I mean, if Trump and these Proud Boys and other groups really were communicating and really were trying to uh, launch a coordinated attack and you just can't prove it in the sense of President Trump calling for it in the speech, but maybe behind the scenes he was. And that seems to be the implication of these kinds of accusations, which I might add, I, you know, no one has seen or presented any proof that there was anything like that. Right. But if that's the case, then it's still the subject of criminal prosecution and investigation. And President Trump is liable to be prosecuted. Uh, now that he's left office, uh, the Federalist Papers talk about the possibility of trying ex-presidents as criminals. And so if that were really true, there's still the possibility of investigating and punishing it, but it's not through the form of this impeachment trial because the House, in its rush to impeach and the lack of process, they made a fundamental mistake and charged President Trump with something he didn't do. Right. And to your point, actually, you have a Fulton County, uh, Georgia a prosecutor who has opened a criminal investigation. It was announced into President Trump for you know election tampering because of his call with the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger there. I don't uh, take that particularly seriously either, but it just it's an indication of what you're saying. If you believe he violated a state or federal statute, then he's not insulated from potential criminal investigation or potentially criminal charges. And so the same would apply with respect to what happened on January 6th. Yeah, I think that's quite right. It's, and, you know, there are people who are speculating towards the end of the Trump presidency that might, he, he might pardon himself, uh, which would raise very interesting constitutional issues, which, you know, you and I have discussed before. But he didn't pardon himself. So he is liable to investigation and prosecution by states, by the District of Columbia, by the federal government, by the Biden Justice Department, in fact. And so uh, this claim that these other uh, people who are being tried for the actual violence on January 6th are making, as you said, I think it is an effort to try to downplay or reduce their own responsibility. I don't find it believable in the least. I mean, I think the people who were involved in the riots on January 6th should be fully prosecuted under the law. But to claim that they were instructed by the president to do it, you would, I mean, they can make that claim and prosecutors can look at it and let's see what the evidence is. Uh, Here's what uh, one of Trump's attorneys, Doug Schoen, uh, had to say in Laura Ingram's show. Uh, yesterday after the show that House Democrat Socialist managers put on. It's not only that they wanted plenty of video time today, it seems like they want a lot of screen time for themselves. They're clearly, you know, playing uh, to the cameras, uh, to the public all of the time. And as you correctly said, I offered to stipulate right in the uh, opening address that I made to the that the riot happened, it was horrific, and so on. And I said, you talk about unity and healing, showing that tape over and over again, the same slides and so on, and manipulated by them, does nothing for healing. It's the exact opposite. It's continuing to open wounds uh, for the American uh, public, 
And it is something that President Trump has condemned in no uncertain terms, the terrible violence that went on there. So there's not an issue about that. They're just hoping to drum up emotion and get their last shots in at President Trump. Well, certainly he's right about that. But is the response to their histrionics to challenge it on the basis of trying to promote healing and unity? I mean, it sounds like a politician rather than really going at the heart of their their sophistry and essentially reclaiming the moral high ground on the issue, as well as the legal high ground. Yeah, I have to say, I think so far, although they haven't done anything more than present their opening, I, I don't think the president's lawyers have done a good job at all. As you say, they had this opportunity to really lay out the case about the unconstitutionality of trying former officials, not people who are in office, but people who are out of office. I, I hate to say it, I think they did a very weak job. I think the House managers did an excellent job on that question. And so it makes you uh, wonder whether they're going to do a good job. And as you, as you identified in your, your and you know, the problems with the prosecution here are that they are essentially trying to attempt, they're trying to put President Trump on trial for acts that are not relevant to incitement to insurrection. And so that's the weak spot in the prosecution case. You'd expect that defendants should you know, make a big, in fact, that should be the core of the case. You worry that they might turn it into a you know, rehearsal of all the claims that the election was stolen, or they might uh, go on about exactly accusing the other side of trying to be on TV all the time, which is no crime for politicians right there. You know, the, you know, the impeachment managers are also members of the House of Representatives, so it's not surprising they're trying to do this in a vivid way on television. But that's not the way to win the case, is to attack the politics or the motives of the prosecutors. There's a lot of uh, a push to also highlight all of the things that were said by Democrats over the many months last year when uh, American cities from coast to coast were under siege and violence was spiraling. Uh, some peaceful protests turned into not so peaceful protests and the like. Um, just to, to suggest essentially that uh, if you want to try to apply this standard, if, or maybe a better way to say it, if you apply the standard to Trump, uh, that, that you're applying to Trump to all of these members who, of the Congress including the vice president of the United States, who made all sorts of pronouncements last year, then you'd be impeaching everybody. Uh, is it important to uh, highlight their hypocrisy and, and uh, sort of display the implications of the standard they're trying to set? Yes, I, I would focus on the uh, last point you just made, which is that uh, put aside the case uh, about Trump in particular, what we should also worry about is what does this do to the structure of the Constitution and the relationship between the president and the Congress. Uh, and what would happen if the parties were switched and you had a Democratic president and a Republican Congress? And the problem is that if you allow Congresses to start impeaching and trying not just people in office now, but everybody who's ever had federal office, or why even stop there under the theory the House is pressing, you could conceivably impeach private citizens, too. Uh, once you start doing that, uh, you are you're, you're enlarging uh, the power of Congress against the president, against the entire executive branch. And I think that runs counter to what the framers thought they were doing when they created uh, the presidency, when they created its election separate from Congress, when they made it so difficult to impeach with a two-thirds requirement to convict in the Senate. They didn't want this kind of power to be held over the heads 
of every president, every cabinet officer by Congress. He is John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, author of Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Remember how uh, we documented on this program David Beasley at the UN World Food Program and David Navarro, a special envoy, UN special envoy on COVID, said uh, don't lock down. That's the first resort in the West because what you're doing is uh, disrupting supply chains for food and other basic necessities of life, medicine in the developing world, including medicines for ailments other than COVID, which afflict the developing world in a way they don't, the first world. Remember how they said that? I guess this is what they were talking about, a recent study Uh, that was done by the American Association for the Advancement of Science in conjunction with a team of researchers. They looked at Africa, Asia, South America, assembled evidence from more than 30,000 respondents in nine countries in Africa. The uh, data paint a consistent picture, the economic shock and attendant disruptions to livelihoods during the early stages of the pandemic to be large across a range of populations in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, for example. By April, many households were already unable to meet basic nutritional needs. For example, 48% of rural Kenyan households, 69% of landless agriculture households in Bangladesh, 87% of rural households in Sierra Leone were forced to miss meals or reduce portion sizes to cope with crisis. Comparing to pre-existing baseline data verifies that these levels greatly exceed the food insecurity normally experienced in those countries at that time of year. So now what you've seen, ultimately, top line here is you have not only exacerbated these problems in the developing world, you've reversed years of work to combat poverty and hunger in particular. And and remember, uh, as I understand from the internationalists, we are all citizens of the world. If you can save one life, I thought is the standard. Wasn't one American life, was it? Hmm. So um, some political accountability may be in the offing, but it's not quite what you think. (laughs) Uh, One suggestion made from an editor of the British Medical Journal calls for some political accountability, but he's not calling for a recall of Gavin Newsom. No, he's calling for uh, certain heads of state to be whisked off and tried before the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Wesley Smith, author and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Wesley, thanks for joining us again. Well, um, who should uh, be brought before the Hague and tried for crimes against humanity, uh, Wesley? Well, he doesn't quite go out and say it, but what he really wants is Donald Trump to be tried for social murder because Trump did not follow the experts, and he also includes others in his diatribe. But you know who he basically doesn't include and who basically has just one minor mention in the entire piece? China. 
the very country that caused this whole catastrophe in the first place, the very country that uh, jailed doctors who tried to whistleblow that a catastrophe was on its way, the very country that just finally let the WHO back into the country. And I think they said something about, well, maybe it wasn't in Wuhan. Maybe it was frozen food that caused this thing. Like we're supposed to believe the WHO. But what this, the head of the British Medical Journal wants is for uh, leaders who do not listen to the experts on these pandemics to be put into jail, which is just an incredible thing when you think about it. Uh, right. Uh, he, he, he talks about the countries that failed in response to the virus and, and um, the need to act urgently and collaboratively in these areas of uh, appropriate response, particularly where, to his mind, appropriate responses weren't made will allow the world to be best prepared for any future pandemic. So, you know, all of this is couched in terms of accountability and being right. forward and being forward looking. But what it really is, you suggest, is uh, the pathway for global institutions, world government or quasi governmental institutions to aggrandize their power in this time, uh, just as you see that happening with governments around the world. Right. Basically, what we see uh, happening out of this uh, pandemic is an attempt to establish what I what is sometimes called a technocracy that is ruled by experts. And the thing that would make this so alarming is not just that the technocracy might be established, but that it would be enforced. The muscle men would be the corporatocracy, big tech. So that just, for example, when you mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, some people who are heterodox thinkers on the pandemic, if they tried to, uh, as they actually did, talk against lockdowns, in terms of the proper response to uh, COVID, you could, they couldn't get on YouTube. Twitter would take down their uh, posts and so forth. So you have this idea that only certain experts have the right and have the capacity to tell us what is the right thing to do, and that anyone else who might bring up a heterodox view or a different view must be shut down. But you see, that's not science. Science is a method for determining facts, and it has to. And uh, scientific perspectives have to always be challenged; otherwise, it just becomes ideology. When we come back with the Discovery Institute's Wesley Smith, I want to uh, get your reaction to a uh, recent global vision statement offered by Saint Tony Fauci. More with Wesley Smith right after this. The more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with the Discovery Institute's Wesley Smith, talking about uh, COVID lockdown and criminalizing those who didn't follow the lockdown demands of the expert technocrats. Uh, the um, recent some, some of the recent pronouncements from Saint Tony Fauci about uh, how to remake the world in his image. I wanted to have you uh, just explain some of the implications of his uh, recent statements, Wesley. It's really quite remarkable. Now he wrote this piece in Cell, uh, which is a, uh, a learned journal that generally deals with uh, you know scientific studies on stem cells or various other forms of uh, medical research. But he wrote a piece back in June or July in which he basically, not basically, in which he said, quote, 
We need to rebuild the infrastructures of human existence because we're going to be entering an era of pandemics. In other words, we have to remake the entire society, uh, the entire uh, makeup of human society. He, he writes about reducing crowding at home, working in public places. He writes about minimizing environmental perturbations such as deforestation, intense urbanization, and intensive animal farming. Uh, he, he wants to make it so that the technocrats basically can you imagine the bureaucracy that would be required to remake the entire infrastructure of human existence? I, I'm still so trying to wrap what, my I'm, I'm still trying to wrap yeah. my mind around the hubris it takes for yes. Uh, yes. a public health professional like Tony Fauci to make such uh, sweeping statements about remaking the world in his image. We have to. He says um, equally important are ending global poverty, improving sanitation and hygiene, and reducing the unsafe exposure to animals so that humans and potential human pathogens have limited opportunities for contact. Oh, is that all? I mean, <laughs> end, end world poverty. And yet, as you introduced our segment, you showed and demonstrated how the scientists have um, found that the very actions that Anthony Fauci supported increased human poverty. Well, well, also too, you know, I mean, frankly, I think he he thinks he sounds intelligent, but he sounds like a Miss Universe contestant, right? I want to end global poverty. I want to end disease and sickness. I mean, it's absurd. And 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 here's the thing about this too. This is what the left does. They make these sweeping statements about a, a, this utopia they're going to create. And and who could be against ending disease, Wesley? Who could be against That's ending right. global poverty? And so we don't have to worry about the details because, as you say, we're the technocracy. We're the experts. We're in charge. You just do what we say. You know, one no masks yesterday, one mask today, two masks tomorrow. You just do what we say. We got this. Right. And by the way, there's going to be a handoff if, if once the pandemic begins to abate to using these same tactics to fight global warming. And so you see the Davos crowd ha are already preparing for that. They call it the Great Reset, mm -hmm. in which they uh, they claim they're going to <laughs> remake capitalism in order to let, – let me uh, read this to you. Um, this is the uh, head of uh, the uh, World Economic Forum. He calls it the Great Reset Initiative, and they're going to remake every industry from oil and gas to tech, and they're going to transform the entire uh, system of world, uh, the world's economy. Again, the idea is technocracy, and then the technocracy— And, 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 and sorry to interrupt, but, but also, too, just for, for those people not familiar, we've talked about it, but you know this Klaus Schwab guy who created this World Economic Forum at Davos— I mean, you know, Conrad Black, who knows him well, we spoke with on the show about him. And it's like, you know, I give him credit for putting together this annual cocktail party. But that's really what it is to get to to seed, you know, global control of your lives to this group of people who meet once a year in Davos is just asinine. It's beyond asinine. It's, it's incredible that they get the sort of intention they do, the uncritical attention that they get. Well, the uncritical attention is the key there, because we need to pay attention to them. Uh, otherwise, all of this stuff will be imposed from on high. What I do in my work is I, I look at the medical journals, the, le the legal journals, the bioethics journals, and so forth, because the popular media doesn't cover what the, quote, 
uh, leaders of society uh, have planned for us. And I think we need to know ahead of time. If you took these ideas and brought them to Main Street and engaged in proper democratic deliberation, they wouldn't go anywhere. But if you have uh, have the idea that the experts get to decide and then the government leaders and the corporations just march in lockstep, well, this could happen. So what we need is to expose these ideas and prevent them from actually germinating. Otherwise, we could be in big trouble. And, and you would think that there are lessons to learn from the response, many lessons to learn, and also uh, including with respect to the uh, vaccinations, the implementation of the vaccination yeah. programs, um, just how much of a cluster it has become in so many places because it is all driven by identity politics rather than anything resembling, you know, a basis in science. And and and. What's really stunning is the lack of ability to gain wisdom, uh, the lack of common sense. I mean, these people have such big brains that they couldn't organize, you know, the, the proverbial two-car funeral, right? It's just incredible. And then you, you look at what happened in New York with vaccinations, where, vac- uh, where vaccines were being tossed out because of the rigid bureaucratization of the dispensing of these vaccines so that if the right people weren't there, um, the vaccine was thrown out. But in Israel, when they had 10 extra vials of vaccine, they went out on the streets, hey, come on in and get the vaccine. That's called common sense. And you have people, uh, people being able to be vaccinated who might have had to wait. I was just reading a story about a doctor recently here in the country who did that very kind of thing, and he got fired for it. So rather than throw away good vaccine, he, he went out and he got people who were not in the, in the proper spot in the queue, and they fired him for actually doing the right thing. This is, this is like machine, col- machine politics comes to vaccination. So, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're a, a constituent in good standing, you get a garbage can. Well, if you're a constituent in good standing or you have the right identity characteristics, then you get the vaccine. And if you're not, then, you, you know, back of the line to you, then you're nobody to me. So it's almost... Meanwhile, it's, meanwhile the, the party of science at UC Berkeley for, for uh, students who are living in the dorm has banned all outside solitary activity as a means of fighting COVID. <laughs> You can't go out and do jumping jacks by yourself on the football field. He is Wesley Smith, author and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Wesley, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and uh, have a, try to stay warm out there. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and um, I'm going to present a choice, and I want it to be clear that death is not an option. Would you rather read Hunter Biden's memoir or watch Michelle Obama's cooking show with two puppets? And no, I'm not talking about Valerie Jarrett and Jesse Smollett. Uh, Hunter Biden set uh, his uh, memoir, his autobiography, set for release in April. Uh, The book chronicles the president's only surviving son's struggle with substance abuse and what the publisher calls a, quote, deeply moving memoir of addiction, loss, and survival. 
Right. I believe the working title is How to Win Communist Friends and Influence the State Department. Zing. Michelle Obama, for your entertainment consumption, is uh, got a new Netflix cooking show, you know, part of their $50 million deal with Netflix, Team Obama there. We'll follow uh, puppet friends Waffles and Mochi as they leave the land of frozen food and embark on global ingredient missions with the help of Michelle and a magic flying shopping cart. Yeah. Waffles and mochi. This is, you know, all about, uh, all in advance of Michelle's uh, lifetime commitment to healthy eating, it shows. Uh, waffles and mochi. Waffles and mochi is like that Japanese rice cake, ice cream thing. Is that healthy eating? Especially the waffles part? I, I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, over the course of their culinary pilgrimages, the duo, the puppets, will travel to kitchens, restaurants, farms, and homes all over the world cooking up recipes with everyday ingredients alongside renowned chefs, home cooks, kids, and celebrities. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Obama saying, quote, I'm... Excited for families and children everywhere to join us on our adventures as we discover, cook, and eat delicious food from all over the world. Uh-huh. That uh, Waffles and Mochi uh, featuring Michelle Obama. By the way, Waffles and Mochi was the name of my high school band. We were an Ashford and Simpson cover band. <laughs> we killed with the Solid as a Rock. That's what our love is. Uh, Waffles and Mochi will premiere on Netflix on March 16th. I want to make sure you get the particulars as perhaps um, you can start to get into that series just in time for the arrival of Hunter Biden's memoir in April. And again, you know, Hunter Biden profiting on a book deal off his familial relationship with the president of the United States is nothing new. And that is not particularly offensive. He is just sort of a living, breathing uh, affront. But um, so that that's not the issue. But I, I still would like that uh, federal criminal investigation. I'd like some routine updates on that if that wouldn't bother anybody too much. You know, Christopher Ray and the boys and girls over at the FBI. This is Dave. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Don't forget to follow us at danproftshow.com. You can get podcasts of the program there as you can on iTunes and Spotify. And uh, on social media, at Dan Prof Show. Uh, so Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, outlining the bold and ambition Biden school reopening plan. About as bold and ambitious as the vaccination plan, which, is, as you recall, a million vaccinations a day was something that was essentially happening before the Biden administration took office. And uh, this plan to reopen schools is also about the state of affairs before Biden took office, which was not a good state of affairs for millions of school kids in America. 
Why is the administration setting the bar at one day a week? Why not go higher? Well, certainly we are not uh, planning to uh, celebrate at 100 days if we reach that goal. Uh, that is our own effort to make our own, set our own markings, bold in a, and set an bold and ambitious agenda for how we're going to measure ourselves and progress. But uh, we certainly hope to build from that, even at 100 days. And from there, our objective, the president's objectives, is for all schools to reopen, to stay open, uh, to be open five days a week, for kids to be learning. That's what our focus is on. This is simply a goal for 100 days. So, Ted, a lot of schools are already doing that. And for working parents, one day a week doesn't help a whole lot. That's, again, the bar of where we'd like the majority of schools across the country to be, which they're not at this point in time. And we want to build from there. And it really depends. It, it differs from school district to school district. Part of the reason that there is funding in the American uh, Rescue Plan is to ensure that school districts that don't have the funding they need to ensure they are equipped to reopen, to meet that bar and exceed it, uh, are able to do exactly that. Well, that's a whole lot of balloon juice to take in, isn't it? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Susan Crabtree, RealClearPolitics.com's White House and National Political Correspondent. Susan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. One day a week for half of the nation's schools. That is bold and ambitious. Does that square with what the CDC has said about where school children should be? No. In fact, the CDC, uh, strangely enough, uh, just yesterday put out guidance saying that it's Basically, as long as there are precautions in place, we don't have any evidence showing that the spread is occurring in these schools that are open. Uh, so it's the timing of this, uh, the scaling back of the promise to reopen schools by the Biden administration is really startling some parents and teachers and even those who voted for Biden who were hopeful and encouraged uh, that they were going to see schools reopen with the vaccinations now becoming available to teachers. Uh, and now we're seeing this sort of roll back, this, this very careful walk back by um, the press secretary, Jen Psaki. And she was pummeled with questions about it two days in a row. So, you know, this is something the American public care about. And some of the criticism is coming from uh, corners of the media. The, the woman that you uh you quoted uh, in your clip was Kristen, Kristen Welker, the NBC yeah, top White House correspondent, and CNN. Jake Tapper really took the administration yeah. to task for being in the grips of the union. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, how else do you explain it? That was the Wall Street Journal editorial board's position, too, basically saying the unions are rolling over the Biden administration and even a $130 billion bribe, their characterization, won't get kids back to school this year. We're seeing this play out in the big cities, Chicago, New York, L.A., and um, how else do you uh, explain the, the, the Biden administration, which is always prattling on about science and data and uh, listen to the experts and their experts are telling them one thing and they're doing the other thing? That what, what, you know, what's the variable other than the teachers unions? Absolutely. And it's, the saddest part about this is that in the urban centers, not in the red states, in red states, uh, Florida, we're seeing the schools reopen at far greater numbers than we are in some of the urban centers where uh, Democratic politicians control them. So it, it's and that's a places where there's the, the their parents are having more uh, struggles to try to balance work and this virtual learning. So you're seeing you're going to see um, a whole generation of theorists fall through the cracks here 
um, at least, you know, these, these younger school kids, but also the high school kids are having more uh, complex reactions to these lockdowns and not being in school. Um, with socialization, you see higher suicide rates, uh, higher depression rates. Kids are not being able to compete for the scholarships in sports that they had hoped for. Similarly, you know, really a sad situation here. And we thought there was some momentum in December when uh, the president, the incoming president said this was going to be his goal, 100 days, we're going to have schools reopen and the pandemic is going to be on the mend. Uh, but that's not what we're seeing here. And it, it's really interesting because I took a look at some of the metrics because we asked Jen Psaki after she made these statements, you know, what are you basing this on? And are, aren't we already sort of at, it's just like with the vaccine, aren't we at, over 50% of schools going to school at least one day in the classroom a week, providing that option. We're already at that numbers according to some metrics um, that I cite in my story. And she really didn't have a comeback from that. Uh, she actually, the Department of Education, uh, they, the White House referred me to the Department of Education. The Department of Education said we're actually studying that right now as part of Biden's executive order from last Friday. We are putting together a survey where we're going to survey classrooms about this, but there's already statistics, stats out there showing that we're already meeting that very low bar and, one day a week in the classroom. And, and uh, you, you point out something important, too. This is sort of lost in some of the reporting, the distinction between K-8 through or pre-K-8 through and high school. Uh, in my home city of Chicago, uh, the big, you know, it was a national story, the continued uh, uh, unwillingness of teachers to return to the classroom. So there's a, a deal in place right now to phase in a return of teachers to the classroom over the next four weeks. So in, into mid-March. But that's just for pre-K through eight. There is no plan. There is no deal on high school whatsoever. So, I mean, to the Wall Street Journalist's point, you can uh, throw all the money you want at these schools and the unions, frankly, that run them, these school districts. Um, there is not going to be uh, getting back to school in a material way in some of these major school districts around the country this year, particularly for high school students that are disproportionately uh, the kids that are suffering from some of the uh, you know, ailments or worse of despair that you were describing. It's just tragic that you're going to have a whole senior class not being able to step into the classroom um, and be with their friends and have that experience before they head off to college. And it's going to change a lot of these kids' college experiences who had hoped, like I said, for um, for sports athletic scholarships and they're not being able to compete. In fact, you're seeing a very big dichotomy between people who are um, who have the means to try to provide, uh, find the leagues, and also travel to states where their kids can compete. And those parents who are too busy and don't have the means, it's creating exactly what the Democrats say that they're against. Um, this, you know, this this big chasm in our uh, in the in the middle class in our in our country. It seems like the pandemic has made that worse. And I can't uh, go back to this gentleman enough, Bob Mazakowski in Chicago, who runs, started a school called Chicago Hope Academy, uh, 90% low-income kids, 90% black kids. And, um, you know, all his kids are, are they've been in school since the fall, um, every day, in person. And, uh, you know, his kids go to college, his kids do well, and so on and so forth, if they can avoid some of the pitfalls of the neighborhoods in which they live. 
uh, and he basically said, here's what you just did in Chicago. You created 30,000 gangbangers because you couldn't, you were too afraid, you were, couldn't get your head together to figure it out and get these kids back to school. I mean, that's the, that's the reality on the ground in some of these tough neighborhoods and some of these big cities. Yes, and we're seeing higher incidence of child abuse. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, it's a startling situation. And you would think that with the CDC, their own CDC, this is the administration following the science, would say, you know, as long as you have certain precautions in place, they're going to provide better ventilation systems with this <clears throat> COVID relief money that we can start to get the kids back to school. It's, it's just some forward progress. But forward progress is not one day a week, especially since we are already there. There are stats showing we are already there. I can, um, if you want to look, take a look at them, I cite them, I link to them in my article. There are um, data companies that are keeping tab, tabs on the district-by-district district practices of schools during the pandemic. And you can see that we're already there. And I, I again, I said that to the White House, I sent these links to these very well-respected uh, data companies, and there was no response. Hmm. Susan Crabtree, RealClearPolitics.com's White House and National Political Correspondent. Uh, great reporting on this topic. Susan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This uh, think piece at NPR. When Republicans attack quote unquote cancel culture, what does that mean uh, from uh, Danielle Kurtzleben? Over at uh, NPR, uh, she uh, talked to some academics to get a uh, clinical view of can- cancel culture from the way it's being uh, uh, misappropriated by Republicans, uh, I understand. Um, six or seven years ago, the idea of canceling someone was largely used among younger people online, particularly on black Twitter, according to Vox's Asia Romano. In that usage, cancel refers to a pretty unremarkable concept, says Nicole Holliday, assistant professor of linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania. It used to refer to a cultural boycott. We had the term boycott forever and ever. It just means I'm not going to put my attention or money or support behind this person or organization because they've done something I don't agree with. That is not new. That's very old. In other words, it was just the marketplace of ideas at work. That's all this is. What I refer to as the purge. But as the concept gained popularity, uh, this uh, fungible NPR columnist reports, concerns grew, particularly among media and political elites, about the threat of online mobs shutting down speech, that perceived punitive atmosphere, just perceived, came to be known as cancel culture. If people say, hey, I personally don't like this person, so I'm not going to buy the products, that's one thing, said Yasha Monk, a political scientist, uh, who, uh, which has decried the so-called cancel culture, but a lot of it is concerted efforts to force institutions to deplatform people. It's firing people for imagined or very minor offenses because of, of sort of online media mobs and so on. 
yeah. But um, is that a legitimate concern, or is it just uh, and you know to to take down people who have committed minor offenses or minor offenses in the minds of some, or even if they've committed uh, the the sin of saying silly things, saying outlandish things, saying untrue things? Is it just the marketplace of ideas? Is that what we're really experiencing? Are we just misunderstanding the uh, evolution of the boycott and uh, this is nothing to be concerned about not to help us explore that question we're pleased to be joined by powerlineblog.com john hindraker president of the center of the american experiment john thanks for joining us appreciate it so what we're seeing playing out on uh, social media platforms in our uh, cultural and educational institutions in the government uh, at every level it's just the marketplace of ideas and some people saying, I'm not going to support your enterprise or your uh, personal view on a subject. And, and um, this is really much ado about not much. Yeah, well, of course, that's not what is happening at all, uh, Dan. And I think here, here's a great example of what we're talking about. Uh, somebody asked me the question, why can't Donald Trump get good lawyers, right? This is after watching his lawyer's performance, I guess, the uh, day before yesterday. Well, there's a very clear answer to that question. And, and let's begin by pointing out, Dan, that anybody can get a lawyer, right? If you are a terrorist in Guantanamo Bay, the top law firms in America will fight for the privilege of representing you for free because everybody's entitled to legal representation, right? That's the theory. Except Donald Trump. Donald Trump can't get a significant law firm to represent him. And the reason is that any law firm that represents Donald Trump in court is immediately besieged by the left-wing cancel mob. They go after the law firm, and then they identify the law firm's clients, which is easy to do online, and they start going after the clients. And we've seen this time after time after time. Any substantial law firm that undertakes to represent Donald Trump, or even like the Jones Day firm out of Cleveland, one of the biggest law firms in, in the United States, they had to put out a public statement saying, no, 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 we're not representing Donald Trump. But, but they still uh, got canceled. My friend, Cleta Mitchell, uh, yeah. a top, top lawyer. Um, Great election one, one yeah, a senior partner at the Foley and Lardner firm in their Washington, D.C. office, uh, gave some volunteer advice to Donald Trump post-election, but while he was still the president. And that became public, and as a result, her firm was besieged by these leftists, and their clients were attacked by leftists. And she concluded that uh, the only thing she could do, uh, almost as a fiduciary duty to her, to her partners, was to leave the firm. So she resigned as a partner in that law firm. We've seen this over and over and over again. So, so to defend uh, President Trump in this impeachment proceeding, which is absolutely farcical, <laughs> we talk about that too, it's ridiculous, uh, he, he is reduced to, to hiring lawyers that, that nobody's ever heard of, uh, that, that uh, are sole practitioners or come out of you know, very, limited, uh, very limited organizations, let's say, um, and, and, and are willing to, uh, apparently willing to, to take the heat. But this, this has nothing to do with, oh, well, I, I just won't use their services. I mean, the people who besiege these law firms, they're not law firm clients, you know. <laughs> it has yeah. nothing to do with that. Well, but, but how is it, you know, the, the, just to play devil's advocate, they would say uh, some of these uh, academics like, that were uh, queried for that NPR piece would say, 
Well, right. It's like uh, Jesse Jackson organizing a boyco- uh, boycott in, in a bygone era when uh, he claimed that uh, Corporation A or Corporation B was being unfair to black Americans um, or, or he just wanted to shake down for Rainbow Push, whatever the point was. So he would just uh, boycott, organize a boycott, get the cameras out there. And that's all this is, is saying, uh, hey, Foley and Lardner, Cleta Mitchell, we heard her on that call with uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and the president. Um, we don't think um, she should, you know, we, we can't support your law firm or we, we find your law firm offensive because you employ Cleta Mitchell because Cleta Mitchell's a partner there. So we're going to bring attention to your law firm the way Jesse Jackson used to bring attention to whichever corporation he was targeting in, the, you know, in a particular week. Well, this is not a boycott. What we're talking about here, Dan, is called a secondary boycott. And and if and if the if the bus company was discriminating against blacks, they would picket the bus company. They wouldn't picket companies that people who rode the buses worked for. Okay, it's it's it's, it's not the same thing. We're we're, we're also uh, talking about um, again sticking with this particular example, uh, something that is clearly not wrongful. I mean, nobody uh, attacks the law firms who provide free pro bono representation to terrorists. You know, the, the, because the theory is everybody's entitled to legal representation. Well, terrorists is one thing. We're talking about Trump. That's just a whole different standard. Well, it is a whole different standard. You're absolutely right. It's a unique standard. How about the law firm? The Perkins Coy firm does a lot of work for the Democratic Party. And it was that firm, and Mark yeah, Elias is the, the key yeah. guy there. Yeah, that was that firm that, that reported a, a bunch of money that was paid to them by the Hillary Clinton campaign. And they acted as the cutout, the bag man. They used some of that money to hire Fusion GPS to create the fake uh, Russian dossier. And the reason you do it that way is to mislead the FEC. It shows up in an FEC filing as legal expenses, right? Because it's a check that's written to the Perkins Coy firm. Well, you know, nobody's boycotting Perkins Coy. It's not clear to me that that wasn't a crime. John, I think uh, Dan Henninger in the Wall Street Journal put his finger on it in his uh, most recent op-ed. I want to get uh, to that with you after the break. We're speaking with John Hendraker, president of the Center for the American Experiment and uh, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. More with John right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with John Hinderaker, president of the Center for the American Experiment, founder of PowerlineBlog.com. We're talking about the purge and impeachment trial 2.0. And I wanted to get, as I mentioned before the break, to this op-ed Dan Henninger wrote in the journal recently. Um, he talked about this phrase that the left keeps using, our democracy. This was a threat to our democracy, almost a delta death blow to our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. He's thinking about this phrase, our democracy, and he writes, when progressives refer to our democracy, what they mean is their democracy. To be a member of their democracy, one has to share their beliefs. If you're not in, you're out. And if you're out, they may come after you for being a threat to our democracy. That seems to me what's happening and why they're being a little disingenuous over at NPR is 
one, a lot of this is coming through private institutions, but you're corrupting private institutions to behave in ways that are offensive to the norms of a free society. And you just use whatever weapons you have at your disposal in advance of authoritarianism, which so private corporations when there is a utility there and government when there's utility there and you're not otherwise going to get yourself in a bit of a constitutional mess. If the constitution becomes a problem, you just outsource the job to big corporations. And oh, by the way, when everything folds into the state and it's coordinated like that, all the civic institutions with the state, you know, that's what gives rise to fascist states. Yeah, no, you're right. There's a natural affinity between big business and big government. And what we've seen in recent years is that not all big business, but a large majority of big business has made the decision to join forces with the left, Uh, not really with the government, because they certainly certainly didn't join forces with Donald Trump, but with the Democratic Party. As you say, Dan, you know, when the left talks about democracy, in their eyes, it's democracy when the Democratic Party wins. It's a threat to democracy, but the Democratic Party loses. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's the simple definition. Yes. But, but on this, this count of biz, big business, so the Gallup survey that came out recently, I mentioned this with Steve Moore the other day, that finds support for big business uh, dropping among uh, Republicans by like 25 points to less than a third of Republicans have a favorable view of big business after more than half did just a year ago for all sorts of obvious reasons, the C-suite culture, mar- cultural Marxists, as well as the participation in some of this purge that we're talking about and the rent-seeking behavior and just, uh, so on and so forth. But the question is, you know, much like the Republicans were a little slow on the uptake to recognize that the Democrats had jettisoned the white working class and working class families in this country generally. They were a little slow to adopt them. They could have been adopted by Mitt Romney in 2012, but he didn't see it. Trump did see it. and They were adopted by Trump in 2016. It seems like they're a little slow on the uptake to do some jettisoning themselves and make a public and formal disassociation with big business, with Fortune 500 rent seekers. It seems to me if you want to rebrand the party post-Trump but have that sort of consistent appeal to the coalition partners that make up a majority in this country that are not part of the very insular ruling class, then you should make a very public pronouncement that all of these rent-seeking, lobbyist-laden Fortune 500 companies governed by cultural Marxists can go to hell, that uh, we're not, we, we as a party are not going to take their money and we're not going to do their bidding. We're going to set rules of the game that are fair for Wall Street and Main Street, and we're going to stop paying attention to the Wall Street money changers. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem, Dan, is that sometimes it is hard to differentiate between being pro-business competition, you know, pro-free enterprise, and being pro-business or pro-a particular business. And and I think sometimes those lines get blurred. And I think Republicans in in Congress often feel like they're being kind of double-crossed because they do things not because they want to help companies X, Y, and Z, but because they want to help uh, free businesses generally. You know, I help the free enterprise system, and then they get kind of double-crossed by the by the large companies. So, well, uh, yeah. yeah, but I mean, but John, you know, you, you can't. The Republicans can't speak with one voice on eliminating, you know, rent-seeking slush funds like the Export-Import Bank, uh, eliminating subsidies for oil companies. Uh, here we go. Well, I'll eliminate subsidies for fossil fuels, and by the way, we're going to eliminate subsidies across the board in the energy sector. I mean, they're, they're, it'd be one thing to it's one thing to say that, but then there has to be something that they do that is uh, exemplary of that stated position. 
more and more we're seeing the the Democrats as the party of the upper class. We're seeing the Republicans as the party of the middle class. You mentioned energy. You know, the people who are most impacted by skyrocketing energy costs, such as we're, we're getting and will get in Spain with the Green New Deal, that's poorer people. You know, the, the wealthy suburbanites, if their electricity bill bubbles, probably won't even notice it. But the person who is just scraping by, uh, if his electricity bill bubbles, he will. He'll suffer. The Republicans' constituency is lower-income people, and they've got to get their messages in front of those people. He is John Hendraker. He is the publisher of Powerline, founder and publisher of PowerlineBlog.com, and president of the Center for the American Experiment. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Dan. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, uh, turning our attention back to COVID. The headlines yesterday, CDC recommends double masking for more protection against COVID-19. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was St. Tony Fauci saying, you know, if it makes you feel safer, feel more comfortable, eh, go ahead and put that extra mask on. Maybe make it two. A couple of weeks later, now we've got a study that uh, provides the basis for a recommendation. And uh, you can be sure that the Biden administration is contemplating a mandate based on Tony Fauci's ruminations that led to a study that led to a recommendation and now what the Biden administration might do with that. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommending everyone wear two face coverings uh, finding after a study finding that uh, doubling up can improve mask performance against COVID-19 by about 50%. Yeah, that's the top line. Uh, 92.5% uh more effective in or 92 and a half percent effective in uh, preventing potentially infectious aerosols. Hmm. And then if anybody bothered to actually read the findings of the study, anybody in the DC press corps, corporate media reporting on this? No, because the top line comports with their desire to support their big government allies in imposing their will on the American public. This from the CDC report on the topic. The findings in this report are subject to at least four limitations. The qualifiers you didn't hear about. First, these experiments were conducted with one type of medical procedure mask and one type of cloth mask among the many choices that are commercially available and were intended to provide data about their relative performance in a controlled setting. These findings, excuse me, the findings of these simulations should neither be generalized to the effectiveness of all medical procedure masks or cloth masks, nor interpreted as being representative of the effectiveness of these masks when worn in real-world settings. That's a pretty big qualifier. Number one, it was one type of each of the masks. Golly, whoever can claim production of those types when it must be pushing for a mandate now, another cottage industry being created. We'll start mandating not just face coverings, but uh, these particular brands that were uh, used, particular products that were used in this study. But even still... The findings of these simulations should neither be generalized to the effectiveness of all medical procedure masks or cloth masks, nor interpreted as being representative of the effectiveness of even these masks we're referencing when worn in real-world settings. Well, uh, unfortunately for the CDC, 
we don't live in laboratory simulations. We live in real-world settings. So what they're saying is the results that everybody is trumpeting should not be interpreted as being representative of the results you can expect in the real world. Powerful. That's just the first limitation. Second, these experiments did not include any other combinations of masks, such as cloth over cloth, medical procedure mask over medical procedure mask, or medical procedure mask over cloth. Third, these findings might not be generalizable to children because of their smaller size or to men with beards or other facial hair which interfere with fit. Finally, although use of double masking or nodding and tucking are two of many options that can optimize fit and enhance mask performance for source control and for wear protection, double masking might impede breathing. <laughs> Slight limitation. Might impede breathing or obstruct peripheral vision for some wearers, and nodding and tucking can change the shape of the mask such that it no longer covers fully both the nose and the mouth of persons with larger faces. So anyway, uh, yeah, if you uh, discount uh, all of those limitations, boy, we, sound, we, we have a panacea, don't we? It's just remarkable the way this stuff gets reported, isn't it? These people that uh, preen about their commitment to science and data, ignoramuses almost without exception. Uh, and uh, then there's this uh, from our friends over at the American Institute for Economic Research. It is not unreasonable, this is a piece by public health professional named Paul Alexander. It is not unreasonable at this time to conclude that surgical and cloth masks used as they currently are, oh, the real world, have absolutely no impact on controlling the transmission of COVID-19. And current evidence implies the face mask can actually be harmful. Uh, this uh, is also uh, based on the documentation of Dr. Roger Koops, who is uh, a former FDA official as well. And he argues, interestingly, that masks as they're being used or or they're being advertised for use should actually be subject to FDA regulations and approval proceedings uh, consistent with federal law surrounding medical devices. But of course, we didn't do that. No. In a related story, you know, once you're done unwrapping your head with or wrapping your head with saran wrap, depending on whether or not you buy this stuff or you don't, then there's this other thing under consideration for from uh, the Biden administration, and that is restrictions on domestic travel. White House looks at domestic travel restrictions as COVID mutation surges in Florida. And now, again, it's important to actually read what's being reported, not just the headline. Discussions in the administration over potential travel restrictions do not target a specific state, but focus on how to prevent the spread of variants that appear to be surging in a number of states, including Florida and California. And, um, Listen to the uh, language of the unnamed CDC official. Of course, they're unnamed. This is a war, and we're at battle with the virus. War is messy and unpredictable, and all options are on the table. Of course they are. You know, and in war, pedestrian considerations about uh, economic interests, quality of life, mental health, you know, the negative consequences of certain policies, those uh, our individual freedoms, those uh, banal concerns are out the window because this is war and it's messy and unpredictable and everything's on the table. Oh, and by the way, the Florida focus too and the uh, the British variant that is supposedly surging in Florida as a percentage of the identified infection. Got to focus on Florida. Ron DeSantis in the state of Florida continues to embarrass the the expert elites inside the Beltway and the Eastern establishment in control of the cultural institutions 
as his light touch continues to outperform the make-believers, the lockdowners in the big blue states and the big blue cities, both in terms of COVID management and prevention of death, as well as prevention of the death of the state's economy. You got to continue to focus on Florida. Ron DeSantis stays top of mind to the Biden administration. So don't think they won't throw in a blue state like California for some domestic travel restrictions in order to get to Florida so that Ron DeSantis and the state of Florida stop embarrassing these lockdowners and their lockdown states that are circling the drain. This is Dan Proft. of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, just a quick purge update, a little uh, bites for your edification as to understanding what's happening to Western civilization. Uh, fresh off the... Uh, Removal of the names Winston Churchill and J.K. Rowling, not that even those names belong in the same sentence, but they certainly don't belong at school and uh, outside of London where their names have been taken off of school buildings because, of course, they're controversial figures. Children's book author, why is she controversial? Because she doesn't support men pretending to be women and women pretending to be men and uh, benefits associated with that um, dysphoria. So that's why J.K. Rowling has been uh, eliminated from consideration for such uh, designations, such honorifics. Winston Churchill, what would England look like? Uh, would it still be on the map if not for Winston Churchill during World War II? But okay, uh, he's racist, so he's gone. Um, so fresh off that, midwives at a hospital in England were directed to no longer use words such as breastfeeding and breast milk in order to be more inclusive to trans parents, mm -hmm. human milk, chest milk, or milk from the feeding mother or parent are the more acceptable terms for midwives to use at the Brighton and Sussex University hospitals and NHS Trust in lieu of using the traditional breast milk. Uh, and this is uh, consistent with uh, what I understand, too. I, I learned many years ago from male nurse uh, Greg Fokker that... Uh, well, you know. Oh, yeah, you can milk anything with nipples. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Uh, and the answer is yes. And when you think of someone using the term human milk, I want you to think of Ben Stiller milking Robert De Niro. Uh, unrelated story, but related story when it comes to purging names, controversial figures, Churchill, Lincoln, Washington. Yes, uh, let's skip over to San Francisco and the latest treat. Uh, the San Francisco School Board, which the Wall Street Journal opined recently, the most politicized school board in the country, and that's saying something. And when they say politicized, they mean Marxist. The San Francisco School Board, uh, this uh, tweet, tweet stream on the topic from a woman named Heather Knight, who's a San Francisco Chronicle columnist who was there at this school board meeting to report. San Francisco School Board tonight spent two hours talking about whether to allow a gay dad of a mixed-race San Francisco uh, school district kid 
to volunteer for one of several empty seats on a parent advisory group. The problem, you guessed it, he's white. And so he doesn't bring diversity to the group. Gay, that's not enough. That's a fairly low intersectionality score, particularly in San Francisco. They didn't appoint him, it turned out. And now the parent group remains all moms, which means women must do all the work of the group. And seven hours after the meeting started, they still aren't talking about how to safely reopen the schools. Well, I mean, you have to get the diversity quotient just right before you tackle the less important issues like educating kids. That seems only right and proper in San Francisco in 2021 America, doesn't it? This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Prof Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at Dan Proft Show. It was sentimental barbarism and straw man arguments yesterday as House Democrat Socialist managers offer their opening arguments in quotation marks, at least if you believe a proceeding of this import should have something resembling a legal argument, even if it's a political process. Uh, let me give you an example of what I mean by the sentimentality. Ted Lieu, one of the House managers, Democrat from California, who uh, thankfully spared us the tiger suit that he otherwise likes to sport. How do we get to the point where rioters desecrated, defiled, and dishonored your Senate chamber? I'll show you how we got here. President Donald J. Trump ran out of nonviolent options to maintain power. That's an argument. Um, that's uh, it's, it's wonderful that Ted Lieu has uh, insight into Trump's uh, mens rea there. Uh, by the way, uh, Ted Lieu not staying on script there, even with that ridiculous charge. He, he said the desecration. I'm sorry, this is an insurrection. This was the sacking of Rome. This was, as Anderson Cooper compared it, the Rwandan genocide. Not kidding. It comes to mind, the idea of otherizing people is something I think we saw a lot of over the last four years. I mean, it's something we've seen a lot over the last decades, but it's so easy to otherize people, to make people other than, other than American, other than patriotic, other than, than human, you know, and we've seen it in Bosnia, we've seen it in Rwanda, where radio was telling people that, you know, Hutus were telling the radio listeners that Tutsi were cockroaches, for, you know, getting them ginned up for genocide. Um, and you see it in, in these videos where people who claim they are patriots are in the face of a police officer calling him, uh, you know, as we're seeing it right there. And, and you know, gouging out the eye of one, you know, squeezing one in, you know, suffocating one in a doorway. And by the way, this, that sort of uh, sentimentality uh, is not just for the D.C. press corps. It's also for the House Democrat managers. That's what... That's what it was, and it's a sort of a combination of sentimentality setting up the straw man argument. Um, it was terrible what happened, so now we're going to go over the top with hyperbolic comparisons. It's 9-11. It's the Rwandan genocide where a million people were slaughtered, and it sets up the straw man argument that there is somebody out there, starting with the president and Republicans generally, tr well, Trump-supporting Republicans generally, 
there's somebody out there that is taking the opposite position that what happened at the Capitol was okay and legitimate, a position no one holds and thus has no probative value. No one supported it. Uh, no one in the crosshairs of this impeachment trial advocated for it. So who are you making an argument against or what exactly is the nature of your argument? It's just what happened was bad. That man is bad. Therefore, what happened was the fault of that man. That's the quality of the legal argument that's being made. Oh, and by the way, they can't even figure out whether or not it was an incitement to riot on the day of or it was a long running conspiracy at which Trump was the head to lay siege to the Capitol on January 6th. The article of impeachment says incitement. Eric Swalwell says conspiracy. This was never about one speech. He built this mob over many months with repeated messaging until they believed that they had been robbed of their vote and they would do anything to stop the certification. He made them believe that their victory was stolen and incited them so he could use them to steal the election for himself. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by William Jacobson. He's a professor of law at Cornell University. He is also the curator of the excellent Legal Insurrection blog, which I definitely encourage people to check out. Professor Jacobson, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me back. So um, I, I understand this isn't a legal proceeding, but you know, there's sort of an expectation when you have a trial, there's, there's things like um, norms of a Western free society where you follow at least the spirit of things like due process and evidence and a cogent argument rooted in the law. And so uh, you, an obvious place to look is the Supreme Court when it comes to a First Amendment issue, which the incitement to riot is. So in the Brandenburg decision, incitement to riot requires imminent lawlessness. It's uh, words, actions that led to uh, words that constitute actions that, that uh, led to imminent lawlessness. And so that was the phrase incitement to write in the article of impeachment. And the argument being made by Eric Swalwell and others is it's not just the speech on January 6th. It's President Trump. And they showed clips of rallies in Georgia in December and January. It's President Trump's rhetoric all the way leading up to January 6th. It was a conspiracy. How can you have both a conspiracy and an incitement occurring simultaneously? Well, you know, I think one of the issues, and I kind of spot-checked the proceeding. I didn't watch all six hours or whatever it was, or eight hours, uh, but I did spot-check it. And what it is is what you would expect from the party of Hollywood to put on a very good visual display of what was a riot. Anybody could take, if you had dozens of cameras uh, taking pictures of a riot, you could slice it together and you could you know, really turn it into a great presentation. But that's not really the issue. Nobody is disputing, as you said, that what happened should not have happened. Uh, certainly the Republicans in the Senate are not disputing that. The question is, is it a ground for impeachment? If that is the case, then we're really going down a very slippery slope. People seem to have forgotten that last summer there were, was an attempt by a large crowd of rioters to break into the White House. And it was sufficiently serious that dozens of uh, policemen were injured and that the president and his family were brought into the so-called bunker at the White House um, out of fear that they might breach the gates. Nobody called that an insurrection. The politicians who've been railing against Donald Trump were not brought up on charges of incitement. Uh, so, you know, it's a complete double standard because... 
They didn't incite the attempt to break into the White House. They didn't say to the crowd, go crash that gate. Um, they didn't have the sort of language you would require in a criminal prosecution to prove incitement to violence. Uh, as you've indicated, it had to be very imminent and very direct. Um, and so, no, there's no incitement to take over the Capitol here. There's general political talk of the sort of political talk that goes on all the time. Well, right. And it seems to me that this is what um, Doug Schoen and Bruce Castor need to get to. Yes, go ahead and play the clips of Ayanna Presley and Kamala Harris and Maxine Waters and Eric Swalwell, who wanted to fight like hell to get the Mueller report, you know, and, 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 and show the symmetry in terms of language, political rhetoric. But the other thing is you have to get to the heart of the emotional uh, appeal, really the fraudulent emotional appeal they're making. I think you have to go after that straight away because the real play here is to, uh, as Dan Henninger wrote in the Wall Street Journal a month ago, the real play here is to eliminate conservatives from the political arena. And uh, if they're not making that case to some weak-kneed Republican senators, then I don't think Trump's defense team is doing its job. Yeah, I mean, look what happened to Parler. Parler was taken off the Internet, and hopefully it'll come back, and from what I hear, it will come back, uh, really only because it was viewed as a place for Trump supporters. There were false accusations made that it was the hub of the planning of this, um, you know, riot, but all of the analysis of the government indictment, there have been multiple analyses, including by my website, of what the government has indicted people for. Parler is barely mentioned. Most of this took place on Facebook and on Twitter. And but none of the, those platforms weren't taken down. So there is a big repression coming. And as you indicate, it is an, this is being exploited to justify a police surveillance state and to justify treating ordinary Americans who happen to disagree with Democrats um, as if they were Al Qaeda terrorists waiting to blow up a building or hijack an airplane. Um, and to use the power of the state to crush your political opposition. That's what this entire thing is about. That's why they're comparing it to the Rwandan genocide, which is offensive um, to make that comparison. Um, and, and, you know, that's why they're doing it, because if you are genocidal, then you need to be crushed. You need to be prevented. You need to be kept out of political life. So they are creating these straw man arguments about their political opposition. Um, it would be as if, you know, uh, Republicans, after a Bernie Sanders supporter shot up a baseball field full of Republican congressmen, you know, seriously wounding, you know, uh, Steve Scalise, uh, and then used that as an excuse to surveil Democrats, to surveil liberals, to crack down on them, to push them out of public life. That would have been the equivalent. He is Professor William Jacobson, clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School. He's also the founder of LegalInsurrection.com, which he was just referencing, which is an excellent blog. And he's president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. Professor Jacobson, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I remember when police officers were in the business of public safety, not pumping gas. I remember when teachers were in the business of instructing children on the three R's, not Mao's Little Red Book. And I remember when the U.S. military was uh, a force designed to deal with escalating national security crises, not just another troop to be scrambled in advance of imaginary crises that uh, the left conjures for the purposes of domestic political advancement. Well, those represent uh, understandings of a bygone era, as Joe Biden made clear on the latter point, which we don't talk enough about, military as an institution. Joe Biden at the Pentagon yesterday. There is no aspect of our agenda, the 21st century leadership, where the women and men of the Defense Department do not have a role, whether it's helping curb the pandemic here at home and around the world, or addressing the real threats of climate change that are already costing us billions in impacts on our basis and our national security, or being part of an ongoing fight for racial justice. You are essential to how we must rethink and reprioritize our security to meet the challenges of this century, not the last. Mm. In addition to being mask marionettes, cue the music, please. We must defeat the coronavirus 2019 and defend the force against COVID-19 while protecting our nation. In accordance with Executive Order 13991, protecting the federal workforce and requiring mask wearing, January 20, 2021, an Office of Management and Budget Memorandum, COVID-19, Safe Federal Workplace, Agency Model Safety Principles, January 24, 2021. This memorandum rescinds Secretary of Defense Memorandum, Department of Defense Guidance on Cloth Face Coverings and provides updated guidance on the use of face coverings and masks, social distancing, and full compliance with health guidance provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Effective immediately, all individuals on military installations, as defined below, and all individuals performing official duties on behalf of the department from any location other than the individual's home, including outdoor shared spaces, will wear masks in accordance with the most current CDC guidelines. Individuals must wear masks continually, continuously while on military installations, except one, when an individual is alone in an office with floor-to-ceiling walls with a closed door. Two, for brief periods of time when eating and drinking while maintaining distancing in accordance with CDC guidelines and instructions from commanders and supervisors. Three, when mask is required to be lowered briefly for identification or security purposes. And four, when necessary to reasonably accommodate an individual with a disability. All individuals on military installations and all individuals performing official duties on behalf of the department from any location other than an individual's home will follow CDC guidance and practice physical distancing specifically by staying at least six feet from other people who are not from an individual's household in both indoor and outdoor spaces. COVID-19 is one of the deadliest threats our nation has ever faced. As we have done throughout our history, the military will rise to this challenge. It is imperative that we do all we can to ensure the health and safety of our force, our families, and our communities so we can prevail in this fight. 
Questions concerning this guidance may be directed to the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. Makes you proud to be an American, doesn't it? The military of Douglas MacArthur and George S. Patton. This is the military of General Lloyd Austin and Commander-in-Chief Joe Biden. A memo that was issued on mask wearing. Secretary of Defense, dated February 4th, 2021. Mmm, stirring stuff, isn't it? And now there's a you know, CDC study that's come out subsequently to masks. So look for another memo from General Austin to our men and women in the military or men identifying as women in the military, because that's important too. another function of our military in 2021 America. It's sort of an important conversation. We've had it before about the military as a social engineering playground for the cultural Marxist left. But as we have seen, Those arguments are sort of conceded, and so this Marxist force continues its advance. You know, appeasement works on the military, or works to undermine the military just as, uh, you know, domestically, just as in theaters of battle. And so that's what we see here. Uh, By the way, on the mask wearing thing, it's sort of remarkable to me this still goes completely undiscussed. One study from the CDC is making all the rounds today about wearing two masks, for goodness sakes, despite uh, all of the limitations of the study as disclosed in the CDC report on the study. No one wants to get into the nitty-gritty, the particulars. We just like the headline. But uh, the thing that I'm remarking upon that goes completely undiscussed, we've discussed on this show a couple of times, a few times, a study that was done on mask wearing that included the military. It's just ignored. Mount Sinai and the Marines that uh, went about their normal course of daily activities and Marines that were in lockdown, some wearing uh, double masks, if I recall correctly, but like in lockdown, monitored lockdown, making sure masks were worn at all time, basically the protocols that are outlined in this memo. And uh, they were quarantined in a barracks for the purpose of being the experimental group. And what did Mount Sinai and the Marines find? that the Marines who went about their normal day, casually wore masks sometimes, not other times, social distanced, actually had a lower rate of COVID spread than the Marines that were quarantined, double-masked, monitored by supervisors. So uh, we talk about K-12 through education, and we talk about local law enforcement police. We talk about academia. We talk about the arts and entertainment. We talk about our non-military governmental institutions at every level. It's just a reminder that the military isn't insulated, certainly from the ambitions of the cultural Marxists. And now you have a Secretary of Defense who's parroting the line that, oh, it's not China that's the greatest threat to the United States and our security. It's white supremacy. Put your mask on. You had Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. We played the clip the other day talking about how, you know, we use drone strikes to deal with terrorists in the international arena, Middle Eastern terrorists. We use drone strikes to take out uh, the Soleimani's. And uh, what we have now is a domestic terrorist threat. I mean, the (laughs) implication of what she was saying couldn't have been more straightforward. Should we consider drone strikes against uh, people wearing MAGA hats? 
You think this is crazy? Is it? Is it crazy? When you run around labeling people uh, violent extremists and you characterize everybody as insurrectionists, try to overthrow the federal government, sack the Capitol, and you have uh, the comparisons to 9-11, the comparisons uh, to genocides in other countries. You think it's such a far jump for people to be categorized as domestic terrorists and dealt with with extreme prejudice? Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, picking up on our conversation about uh, impeachment 2.0 with Professor William Jacobson at Cornell. Some of what ha- was suggested by Professor Jacobson and many, many, many others is to uh, play clips from the assorted Democrat socialists who've made all sorts of pronouncements rationalizing, if not advocating for or covering for violence uh, in many forms, using the same bellicose rhetoric that President Trump used on the trail at rallies, fighting for this and fighting for that. We won't stop until we get justice and so on and so forth. Uh, we've played them on this show before. You know, like socialist Spice Girl, Ayanna Presley. You know, there needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there is unrest in our lives. You say, well, she just meant peaceful protests. Well, I know President Trump said, let's go over to the Capitol peacefully. Some people didn't. Ayanna Presley said unrest in the streets. She, of course, just meant uh, peaceful protests. Well, some people did and some people didn't. What's the difference? Kamala Harris on with Colbert. Same difference. They're not going to stop before Election Day in November, and they're not going to stop after Election Day. They're not going to let up, and they shouldn't. And you say, well, they're talking about protests. She said protests. Right, I know. Right, same thing that President Trump said. Continue to fight. You can't let up or you're going to lose your country. What's the difference between that and what Kamala Harris said? And some people peacefully protested. Most people peacefully protested in both cases. And some people did not. So what's the standard? It's one of the things that uh, his defense team should do. But you have to go right to their argument as well. Their argument that extends beyond impeachment 2.0. And this is where I think Republicans are falling down on the job. But let's get some additional perspective on that. Pleased to be joined again by Michael Goodwin, who is a New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor, of course. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. You know, as you heard me saying, yes, 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 the hypocrisy of the left. This is a refrain from conservatives, and it's fair because it's true. But you have to go after the idea that uh, 74 million people are really on trial here, not just President Trump. It's The target is the Trump universe to frighten people away from the Republican Party, to suppress voices of dissent, and to, in some cases, if you're too obstreperous, to bring, you know, assemble power of the government to visit upon you. Well, and who wouldn't love to have the other side shut up, shut down, and locked up if they persist? I mean, that's sort of what the Democratic playbook is right now. Um, I'm not quite sure how we got there, except sort of inch by inch, uh, the Democrats tolerated and saw uh, an advantage in resistance, and resistance became more and more violent as as time wore on and as Donald Trump didn't uh, give in, as there was no there there for the 
Russia, Russia, Russia story, the Ukraine impeachment. So each of these things, rather than quell the appetite for resistance, only fueled it. And of course, you had the cheerleading media, you had the radicals within the Democratic Party tent pushing the whole party left. Look, I think Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi bear enormous responsibility for the violence that's going on in this country. They have never once condemned what happened over the summer. Nancy Pelosi asked about a group in Baltimore pushing a statue into the harbor. She said, people are going to do what they're going to do. Now, if that isn't a green light, I don't know what it is. And so, yes, Donald Trump said and did some really stupid things. And I think his conduct past a certain point was just indefensible. He's president. He lost the election by every count. I mean, I'm among those, as I'm sure you are. Uh, We gave him every benefit of the doubt in terms of his court cases, in terms of, you know, making the charge. But at some point, the game was over. There were no more at-bats. You may think you were cheated, and he clearly does, but those are the rules of the game. You had to stop at some point. And this foolishness that Pence could overturn it, I was all for the objections. I thought the objections to the count were sensible. I thought it was an interesting idea that Ted Cruz had of a 10-day commission or a 10-person commission working for a week or 10 days, whatever, to try to rectify and clarify some of these issues. But it was not to be, and so it's over. And yet I think that when you match these two things, as you've done, is there is a double standard. And that Time magazine piece laid it out that you had big tech. To me, that was the most important thing there. Big tech was in on the game from the beginning. Their censoring of conservative voices, particularly the, the, you know, the New York Post on the Hunter Biden story, because the left wants to humiliate Donald Trump and humiliate everybody who ever supported him, then I think it's incumbent on the Republicans to say, well, what are we going to do? Uh, Michael, let's hold it there, and I want to come back and uh, drill down some of the things that uh, you just ticked off in your sort of impeachment 2.0 assessment. More with the New York Post, Michael Goodwin, right after this. Back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor Michael Goodwin about uh, impeachment trial 2.0. And, uh, Michael, I want to pick up on your assessment of it as you were outlining it before the break. Uh, one point is indefensible conduct is not the same thing as impeachable conduct. And Absolutely. I, I, and I know you're saying that, but I just wanted to make yeah, it explicit, sure. too, because Thank I think you. there's a lot of people that uh, if you if you disagree with the president did or said at some point uh, during the last six weeks or the last six weeks leading up to January 6th, I should say, 
then uh, that means you should support impeaching him or support convicting him. Well, and that's just silliness. I mean, there's a, a standard here, and it's a relatively high bar. It should be a high bar, even in a political process. And, um, you know, those sorts of lines need to be drawn in addition to, it seems to me, his defense lawyers need to make the case, as I was sort of intimating, and I, I don't know if they even understand this, which is a concern, that um, what Pelosi and Schumer and the assembled uh, leadership of the Democrat socialists are trying to do is eliminate conservatives from the political arena, drum them out of the political arena by all you know any means necessary to borrow a phrase. And you are describing that. But I think that needs to be made explicit about in terms of what the real end game here. It is about so much more than Trump and they need to make that case. So maybe some Republican senators that are half asleep wake up. Well, you're right. And, you know, the the idea of knocking Trump off the ballot. Remember, that was the goal with the Ukraine impeachment. That was the end game there. Knock him off the ballot. And and now it's still the end game. Knock him off the ballot for 24. Uh, that tells you what they're really about. I mean, that, that uh, social media thing that Trump tweeted, I'll never forget it. It was the day of the Ukraine impeachment vote, December of, uh, December of 19, where uh, the, he, he tweeted this picture of himself, and the caption was, you know, uh, they're not after me. They're at, they're after you. I'm just right. in the way. Right. And exactly. There's something that is exactly right. I mean, that struck me at the time, and I wrote about. I've written about it several times. That sums up the entire thing that we are witnessing. This, when you say knock Donald Trump off the ballot, what you're saying is we're going to take your general off the field. We're going to take your candidate off the field, so you can't vote for him, and therefore you can't win. I mean, this is very much about the next election. It's not the last election. It's the next election that this impeachment is about. How much uh, stock do you put in this report that was out yesterday about uh, some Zoom call with 120 disaffected Republicans or, or Republicans, sort of, Evan McMullen, you know, who, who was the, the candidate that the Never Trumpers came up with in 2016 to no particular brilliant, effect. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, but, but, but they persist. You know, these are the Lincoln Project types. These are some of the, uh, the uh, op-ed writers at uh, National Review and, 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 you know, the Bill Crystals of the world and so forth. I mean, are they just uh, looking for relevance or a paycheck or do, do they have uh, um, a, a real play here with some sort of splinter party um look i i think if there is a splinter party um no matter who splinters it whether it's trump or the never trumpers the gop is dead uh i mean it, it doesn't win and the democrats benefit most uh, you you really can't have a three-party system right now where you have the socialist democrats on the left and everybody else splintered uh, that, that's not a three-party system. That's uh, one party and the other party divided in half. Mm -hmm. uh, so th there's no way, I think, for the Republicans to go down that road. And they will never win not just another election. They'll probably never win another seat uh, anywhere that way. So th th this is a trying time. And, and look, uh, I, I voted for Donald Trump twice. Um, I'm happy to have done that. I think he was a very good president in so many ways, and we're already seeing the distinctions with Joe Biden's foreign policies and his domestic issues on energy and schools. I mean, 
80% closed schools counts as an open school. Um, <laughs> this, is the, this is the new math for Joe Biden, and we're going to kill thousands of jobs, but we're going to create other ones later. Um, so I, I, I just think that the Republicans have to find their way around this moment. They have to figure this moment out. And I don't think making concessions to Democrats on impeachment is the answer. You can say, as I just did, that Donald Trump did and said some stupid things, but he did not intend to incite that crowd to go into the Capitol and, and wreck it. There's no, there's no language in that speech, nothing leading up to it or nothing afterwards that suggests he was planning to incite a crowd. Well, you know, know, you know, what's interesting, too, is the, the, the Democrats can't even settle on whether he was the, the head of a conspiracy to lay siege to the Capitol that uh, was months in advance, weeks and months in advance, or if it was incitement to riot on that day. They keep arguing in the alternative and, and one, the, the two are mutually exclusive. So even they can't figure it out. Right. And you have all of this proof of those who did plan uh, something violent that day. That clearly were, that was not part of the president's supporters. I mean, these are the, these are the, there were people there who brought uh, crowbars uh, and baseball bats to a rally. I mean, they didn't, you know, wearing military gear and communication with others. There were people there who came for the very thing that happened. Right. Uh, those people who were just carrying flags and marching around, they, they didn't come for violence. I mean, they were duped into it. But uh, I, and that's why you, when you look at the charges being filed, those who are charged with conspiracy, uh, those are the serious people you have to worry about. Those who were charged with misdemeanors of uh, entering unlawfully the Capitol, I mean, they were dupes. They should not have done that. But they didn't come to wreck. They didn't come to create violence and mayhem. Uh, and I think that's the difference that law enforcement seems to be figuring out. And some of the media is actually reporting that. But and the Democratic Party wants to link it all together and say, all of you condemned forever. He is Michael Goodwin, New York Post columnist and Fox News contributor. Michael, thanks as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Could the man who discovered quantum theory could he have known what they would be doing in his name 75 years later? I'm talking about a geneticist from the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Genetics in Berlin. They uh, discovered something in their study of sperm, a genetic variant in mice that allows sperm cells to poison their competitors before the race to the egg has even begun. Oh. 
Uh, and you thought Mario Kart was fun. The poisoning occurs while the individual sperm cells are in development and before they step up to the starting line. Talk about literally strangling in the crib. So, to, so they, before it starts, preventing them from actually navigating their way to the egg. I mean, this is, uh, you know, death race, Jason Statham quality here. Imagine a marathon in which all the participants get poisoned drinking water, but some runners also take an antidote, says uh, Planck Institute director Bern- uh, Bernhard Hermann, Air Hermann. However, the researchers also found there could be instances where the would-be assassins, whom Hermann dubs ruthless competitors, overdosed on their own poison if they killed too many pretenders to the throne. It's like the uh, standoff between um, uh, Wally Shawn and Anigo uh, uh, Montoya and Princess Bride. Um, the uh, research focuses on particular a particular protein switch. Yeah. Maybe the Age of Enlightenment isn't over, just with respect to COVID. Uh, it's a particular protein switch, RAC1, for those scoring at home, that is crucial to allow sperm to navigate successfully during their quite literal life-or-death race to the egg. If that uh, protein switch is interfered with in any, any way, then our internal guidance system fails, and so does the hopes of reaching the egg as well as life itself. So, you know, they, I'm thinking, I get, I get this Mario Kart, you know, you're racing and then you miss the mushroom and you fall into the ravine, something like that. Genetic, this is my, you know, complicated understanding of uh, molecular science. Genetic researchers, uh, research suggests that, um, or such as this, regardless uh, of the animal involved, uh, can yield insights so the mice sperm, and into and improve humanity's understanding of the wider process of evolution across all species, particularly the miserly means by which certain genetic variants gain an unfair advantage in the race for life. (laughs) Be careful how you characterize this because now we're going to have to devote uh, untold hours of this show to dealing with um, white mice sperm privilege. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please continue to stay informed so you can be brave and we can live free. And join us again tomorrow to close out the week. This is the Dan Prof Show.